Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elkut Global. Very happy to have two great guests with us, both from the SoftBank Vision Fund. We have Anna Lowe, who's an investment director, very active in, well, globally, but in specific with a focus on Asia Pacific. And John Hong joining us from Silicon Valley from US, also an investment director, very much active in North America. Both of them have overseen investments in the logistics transportation space from some SoftBank side. And very excited to have you both here today with us to share more. So welcome, John. Welcome, Anna. Glad to have you. Thanks for having us, Radu. My, my pleasure. So first, maybe let's let, let me give you one, one minute of sharing in terms of the um, latest uh, and and john maybe i'll start with you because you've you've had the, the latest investment right that you've overseen in ship bob uh, specifically maybe tell us a little bit about that how it went and and some ref points yeah so maybe i'll start a little bit higher level right uh, transportation and logistics has been an important part both the first vision fund and the second vision fund having invested a lot in mobility and also logistics across both funds Uh, we obviously look to diversify our exposure, but have seen a good application around our core for the application of AI and data to global leaders here. Obviously, SoftBank has had a long history in e-commerce, dating back to some of the uh, most famous investments that Moss and SoftBank are known for. And as a result, we've done a lot of work in the sector, not only on the e-commerce platforms directly, but the companies that support them. And so when we look at a sector like logistics, we look at multiple areas. And as we kind of think of our thesis here, it's really been driven by the consumerization, right? Both from the e-commerce side, which then flows back into logistics where people want things faster, cheaper, better. And what we're really focused on is helping to democratize e-commerce for both consumers and merchants. And so, you know, one big trend that we've seen over time is the, the rise of the DTCs or direct-to-consumer brands, right? And these brands themselves are, are have a bunch of great entrepreneurs that are looking to build their own products and sell them and, and tools have come up, right? From AWS to Shopify, and we think e-commerce enablement and logistics uh, is another key area, right? You as a DTC brand have created your product, you go out and market it, but you're not a logistics expert, right? And so when we looked at the space in terms of areas of value and uh, choke points, e-commerce fulfillment came up as one of them and, and Shipbox was a company that we, we spent time with along with some of their peers, right? One big thing that we do in our diligence is to try to get to meet everyone and, and be able to compare and contrast uh, their various models and be able to make our own inputs into what we think will be successful. And so, you know, there are multiple aspects that we liked about ShipBob. I think one of the first ones is actually their full stack solution from a being a software provider for a platform of e-commerce fulfillment to actually operating some of their own warehouses, right? This, in the end, e-commerce, whether on the front end or back end, eventually involves the movement of physical goods. 
And so the movement of these physical goods requires operational excellence. And what we've seen here obviously is an acceleration in the past year, right? COVID with all of us, unfortunately stuck at home, uh, continuing to order more and revealing the necessary uh, parts of the supply chain where there are choke points, right? And even the biggest platforms last year struggled, right? Things around lack of capacity, having visibility into your supply chain have all been important things. And companies like Shipob allow both merchants and consumers to have that sort of visibility by having a fully integrated full stack approach are able to provide, you know, the two day shipping that we've all come to expect and also at a price that we all expect, which is effectively free. Right. And so for ShipBob, we saw a really interesting attractive end market and supporting e-commerce and just this continued drive to quicker delivery at cheaper prices, but with also a better experience. The company obviously is growing super fast, which is something we're all focused on as it relates to investments at the Vision Fund. Growth is very important. But importantly, they're actually having a strong profile, a margin profile, and a path to profitability. And so ShipBob has had the great combination of growth and profitability and kind of a durable moat in terms of being integrated having a merchant application, a warehouse management system that then also helps drive operational excellence and therefore allows merchants to offer a better experience to the consumer. So, and all this of course is underpinned by data, being able to help those merchants move inventory to the right spots so they can actually then have cheaper shipping, right? Because if you remember the movement of the package, there's a part of it that costs to store it and then to move it. What's interesting by being integrated here, you can actually help cut the cost of delivery by moving it closer, but then you need to predict what the demand will be for that product there, right? And be able to have high visibility into the inventory. And so their data and platform help merchants do that. Yeah. Thank you for that, John. And uh how about Asia Pacific? So, I mean, specifically for the market that, that ShipBob addresses, we don't yet have a big player here, but, yeah, you know, right. maybe. And, and I think I, I want to go back from my vantage point being based in Asia and John alluded to kind of the history of how we started and, and you know, what investment, what sectors we were putting bets on. And I think, you know, going even to the broader logistics and mobility space. Um, you know, one of our first investments uh, into mobility and, and well, two of them, both of which predated the Vision Fund were into uh, DD from China, Grab from, well, if you include India as well, Ola, this this kind of our, our bet, our biggest bet into mobility and ride share was initially to solve the transportation and human move, people movement issue given the lack of options in those geographies and those investments occurred in you know between 2014 and 15 and you fast forward that i would say probably five years later in late 2019 early 2020 you know I, i'm based in singapore so I'm, I'm closer to our portfolio grab who's headquartered here so i'll, I'll focus on that you know, you see them going really deep into thinking about 
you know, in terms of service offering other than transporting people from point A to point B, what are the other things, you know, such as, you know, food delivery, you know, moving, you know, what they, we call Grab Express, moving packages, and, and just being able to provide those different types of last mile logistics, whether it's people or, or objects, parcels. And, and it's interesting how that kind of now is all converging together in the sense that, you know, what Grab, the type of express services that Grab or a Gojek provides is not in direct competition with, you know, the, the express logistics providers that have been serving the e-commerce platforms, you know, however long e-commerce has been around, uh, they're quite complementary to each other given the geographic differences in each of the cities. It, you know, it's down to really local on, you know, do you need things in three days time, in two days time, or a two hour window? The consumers have become so discerning that, you know, they're before the consumer is just waiting for the package to arrive at home. It's not up to them. It's up to how the sellers and the platforms could arrange the actual delivery. But now, like John said, with the use of data and technology being to able to monitor every part of that parcel journey, you know, it's, it's now both platform sellers and buyers have the option of, hey, I want to, I want something in the next hour or I want something in the next 30 minutes, or I want something, you know, I'm fine waiting for four days to, because I'm more friendly about, you know, saving boxes and, you know, don't want to have carton boxes piled outside my house, or, or you know, I, I want to save on shipping costs. I'm not in a rush. And, and this whole point about, I think, on specifically on Indonesia, given the, 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 topical nature of the, the islands, um, you know, the concentration of population, um, sellers and FNCG companies uh, now with the, the use of technology and data are able to better allocate their inventory to be as close to the, to where the demand is. Um, so you're seeing a lot more efficiencies on that front. Absolutely. And in terms of big picture trends, right, we've got this question, right? So wh what do you see happening at the macro level in this space of, well, whether you call it mobility is, I guess, is the bigger word, but then you, you narrow it to transportation, logistics, last mile fulfillment. What are some of the big, you know, big areas of development you see? And, and you will also probably uh, closely invest in at SoftBank Vision Fund. Yeah. I think one of the key trends that we've seen in the last year is people want things faster, right? It was more difficult in the past year to go out and get it physically for yourself. And so, you know, another company that I invested in, GoPuff, right, has been focused on delivery in under 30 minutes of, you know, a select number of SKUs. And that's, you know, more unique in the U.S. I know that that has been possible probably more in Asia and Anna can obviously speak to that, but the growth of platforms like that have been really important because you used to be able to get in your car, obviously go down to the corner store and get whatever you want. But when you're forced to stay at home, you still need something immediately. And so we've seen companies like GoPuff really have strong tailwinds from that. And that's just, you know, an acceleration again of the trend of, you know, wanting two day shipping 15 years ago when that first started free to now wanting things faster. 
But the other interesting trend on the service side is we used to take for granted that it was, you know, in a just-in-time economy when everything worked well and you don't have boats getting stuck in canals and places that things will just show up on time. And I think last year it also proved to us that that's not a given anymore. And so there's a real operational excellence where people are able to deliver in adverse conditions. You want to make sure you have neutral players within your supply chain, right? Ones that may or may not prioritize others over you, that it's even keel playing field for those delivering your goods or, or handling them. I think one of the things that's actually more recent we're seeing is obviously the trend within labor costs. And so we've obviously invested a lot around automation and robotics over time. And this is becoming front and center, right? Before, I think you were able to hire a lot of people and to, to work in warehouses and to deliver goods. And that's obviously gotten more expensive. That's happening within our portfolio. That's happening within the general economy. And so, you know, with us investing in companies like AutoStore, which is warehouse uh, robotics and automation, or even delivery self-driving platforms like Neuro that help augment, right, this rising cost of, of labor and to supplement and to, to help find alternative solutions to continue to, you know, drive down the cost of moving a good. So those are probably some of the bigger trends we're, we're seeing right now in the U.S. Yeah, so I think out of Asia, um, especially in Southeast Asia, you will see us as a technology investor, the pace at which we uh, deploy capital into, you know, tech-enabled logistics space. You know, now that you know we place out that mobility, will probably come at a slight lag to our U.S. teams, just given the core infrastructure in the countries in which we, we cover. You know, they they, they don't <laughs> develop. They're 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 in the stages of development as opposed to, you know. The U.S. and Europe's having proper roads and proper railways and and, and established you know, shipping lines, and COVID hasn't helped <laughs> with that. But for the time we've placed coverage on the ground, which was about starting two years ago, we definitely have seen very interesting emerging startups providing very specific digitized solutions for, you know, whether it's uh, freight forwarders or trucking companies that were really just purely operating from the telephone or pen and paper. So really helping that, providing the basic uh, digitized solutions for those players. So, so, so I would say for our target stage and area, a lot of these companies probably have not reached the scale at which we would make a, an investment yet. But I would say the big trends, there's definitely lots of new companies that are trying to serve the express logistics, the trucking companies again. But we're also seeing specific logistics companies that are you know, quite established in, say, a particular part, whether it's in 3PL, whether it's in particular geography, they're starting to vertically build out this, you know, okay, let's bring in resources to build a brand new warehouse management system because we already have a base customer because there's no kind of uh, the, the type of the US and European imported solutions is too probably too sophisticated for what the market needs here. So you're starting to see some of these more mature 
companies starting to develop that in-house to basically to upsell to their existing customer base. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of kind of looking for automation and kind of new innovations in robotics, probably that's from, I think, Vision Fund as a whole on the, on the global level, kind of the priority geographies for, for those type of investments will likely to come from U.S. and Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings, and we've had some question alluding to that. So what's your criteria? I mean, maybe for many, many of the startups, well, startup scale-ups listening to this, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure that you get pitched on every minute of the day, right? So, of course, SoftBank has a reputation and you've, you've written some large checks. You've made some great successful bets. But how do you choose the ship bob versus, you know, the other you know, potentially similar similar startups? Uh, what what are some of the criteria that, uh, and maybe it's interesting, it might be also uh, slightly skewed depending on the region, right, John and, and Anna? But tell us a little bit about your, you know, how do you make these decisions on invest or not invest? Yeah, I would say for us, right, our, in Moss's view is that AI is going to be the next revolution. And so the application of AI data is first and foremost in our framework that the, you know, there are a lot of interesting companies that will generate returns for investors and have a lot of positive good, but they may not involve AI in data applications. And then, you know, there will be the right pools of capital to pursue those. That's just not within our mandate. Within that too, we're also looking for market leaders, right? Disrupting large areas, either within a region or eventually globally, right? That these trends that we've touched on today and in other sectors that we invest are global, right? And they impact a lot of people and bring a lot of good to people in those regions that they touch. And within that, we, we're growth investors, right? We're growth stage investors to late stage. And so we continue to look for companies that have obviously generated traction, both uh, generally on a a revenue basis, but some form of traction in terms of the the products that they're deploying and are growing quite quickly, right? And for us, growth is is also paramount. And I don't know if there's anything else you would add there. Yeah, so category leaders, application of AI, of course, but I think given I I cover a region where it constitutes multiple countries and cultures and languages, I think when we look at potential opportunities in, say, the English-speaking countries, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, where we understand that, you know, the founder teams there probably also understand that, you know, they're building a product that's made to to globalize or regionalize. And, and with the kind of English-first product they've built, you know, naturally, you know, they will aspire to go to the U.S. or, or U.K., you know, the, the English-speaking countries. So, so I think those will be kind of the countries in which we can find opportunities where they can become global. But whereas countries, populous countries such as Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, what we found that the solutions have to be very localized. So having, um, you know, John didn't mention about the people, the, the management team, of course, is... Uh, of utmost importance as well. There are there is an emergence of second time founders now. I think in Southeast Asia, that's that's a really good thing to see as as you see the whole ecosystem uh, matures. You know, we do take bets on first time founders, 
but I guess you know it, it depends on kind of what kind of product and, and what what kind of segments they're targeting. But we're seeing founders have become the, the kind of their caliber. Um, you know, we set the same standard globally for for what we see in a founder. So so I think it's it's we're very glad that you know we're beginning to see more and more promising companies there. Yeah, so so I think what John mentioned about, you know, the ability to apply AI, you know, in certain countries maybe maybe too soon to talk about AI and maybe too sages from what they're trying to achieve. But you know, we're also working with them to to build that path. And that's that's where our value add is as well. And I think what I want to address specifically, and there's always some market confusion in uh, Asia PAC, especially, and, and I've dealt with that throughout my career at SoftBank, is uh, people are trying to figure out the different pockets of SoftBank. So in Asia, there is a, another entity called SoftBank Ventures Asia, which is formerly known as SoftBank Ventures Korea. They focus more on Series A and B investments, whereas we are Series C and beyond. So, so there's a clear. I think you probably you won't see in the market, you know, these two entities you know, going after the same deal. So there, there is a. I, I would love to say to founders that SoftBank does offer a great menu of options in terms of source of capital with our early stage entity with the vision fund you know we have spac vehicles we have our public investing vehicles so so you know when it comes to capital solutions if you're in the growth stage and, and you meet the kind of criteria that john and i just talked about yeah come talk to the vision fund mm, exactly to your point and and we actually before we went on this call i was uh, telling john that i saw an investment recently yes just yesterday there was there's a company called parcel perform that's right that's right and then uh, yeah <laughs> that's done to, by something ventures asia exactly so to your point so this very very clear maybe maybe you need to change the name <laughs> so you put you know because you know softbank i think people all immediately associate the big deals but yeah rightfully said softbank ventures everybody watching does series a b what john and anna do and softbank vision fund is series c and and above so it's a different magnitude of uh, deals both of course both funds very much necessary I also wanted to to show you this question, and Anna is going to be more for you, but I think it's relevant in the overall scheme of things. But Anna, you you handled Grab, right? So this is the first part of the question, right? So has moved to so many different verticals, first, last mile, services, fintech, da, da, da. And then this is the question. So my question, how do you assess the change in strategy for startups moving from what it was when they you initially invested to some very different verticals? Or if I can maybe try to summarize or paraphrase is like you know how do you kind of accompany them on the journey of pivoting right or or expanding and and how do you help them decide what is worth pursuing and what is not yeah so so we're there for that journey and and when we especially at the stage that we invest we we know that i think at the time i think i alluded to at the very beginning when we first invested in grab it was to two countries, uh, a few cities, and, and you know, just trying to move people. 
instead of now, you know, now it's just like you said, proliferate of uh, fintech services. But so, so I think Grab and the Grab case is still mobility and delivery. So, so the 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 use of kind of this last mile logistics solution for 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 people and goods will still remain at the very core of the business. And I think fintech, the evolution of that, you know. Fintech journey has really come to as we think about, you know, food delivery. We think about increasing cases. It's still a very much a marriage of offline and online services. You know, because you know you you need to get in a car to 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 get from A to B. That that doesn't. I, I wish Grab provided teleporting services. <laughs> yeah, whoever's going whoever's to nail that, they're not. <laughs> yeah, well, you have, you have some billionaires going to space first before uh, teleporting happens. But, uh, so that's why when we when we think about writing that first check uh, at at the stage that we go in, we do spend a long time with the management team pre investment to map out what could be the three to five year vision for them and where they want to expand and and whether the, the check size we're writing for this point in time is whether that will help them realize the two-year vision or three-year vision the five-year vision and obviously that's you know the initial check size is a factor of you know deal dynamics you know other various factors that results in that first check but that conversation about where the company could go in five to ten years time happens very early you know whether but no one has a crystal ball to the future on in five years time I exactly want to do that there, there have been occasions where yes you know I might have to take a hard pivot to something else or the company tweak the, the solutions or or increase the service line, decrease the number of services that it will offer. But I think largely in the Grab case, um, I think for the past, you know, we invested in late 2014, it really hasn't, you know, verge kind of off track. I think FinTech has always uh, been in that picture. Yeah, I would just add, right, in terms of the previous question, when we invest in large TAMs with market leading companies with strong management teams, often there will be adjacent growth areas that will always emerge and Anna talked about some of them for grab. But obviously we also are here just given the, the size of capital that we're looking to deploy to, to support these founders and, and their teams to invest in these growth opportunities, right? Because we very much see natural extensions of these businesses. You can look at some of the, the legacy investments in Alibaba or, or any others, right, that Masa invested in a long time ago and, and sort of the derivations that have come from there. And I think we see that in, in many of our businesses and we look to support them both in replicating their model, you know, into other geographies or moving into adjacent areas of their core business within their geographies or even other geographies. And I think that's one of the strengths that we have as a, a platform when we do end up partnering with entrepreneurs and their management teams. Mm. And I'll, I'll stay with you for a second, John, because we kind of talked a little bit offline, but 
On the question that came regarding will SoftBank ever invest in an asset heavy but underpinned by technology, the question was carrier, right? The shipping lines, the you know the top uh, ocean carriers of the world. They are some of them are investing heavily on the technology side, on going digital, on um, analyzing and having access to a lot of data. But at the core, of course, they are still heavily asset focused. So. Would you, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think as to what Anna had spoken about earlier, right, around our framework, it, it doesn't differentiate whether it's asset heavy or asset light. Now there are different capital needs, but if it sticks to our knitting of, you know, the application of AI and data, uh, and, you know, as a market leading company where we see significant areas of growth in a big town, you know, I don't think we would you know, off the bat, dismiss it. So I think we would we would consider it. Mm -hmm. Got it. And now coming a little bit. So Anna mentioned people you alluded and a second time, uh, second time entrepreneurs. There's quite a few I saw recently a map um, with uh, I think it was the team that started Lazada six, seven years ago. And now where they're each of well, not each. Some of them are still there, but a lot of them have gone and, and set up their own things. I wanted to ask both of you, I'll start with Anna, when it comes to people, when it comes to selecting these teams, right, on top of, okay, this is this is almost like, you know, what's your track record, right? So, okay, you set up something, of course, you, and it was successful, there's, there's a better chance that you're going to do it again. Are there other criteria? Are there other, you know, I don't know, secret sources of how do you know that this is the right team, the right you know, founded the right CEO versus, okay, maybe there's some issues there. Well, I mean, there, there's definitely, I think within the Southeast Asia uh, circle, like I, I said, you know, there, there's an emerging class of second time entrepreneurs, but I think the circle remains somewhat tight knit. And a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of, you know, people are, who are thinking about startups or, or people who had just started, they know how to now with, you know, the, the flat world we, we live in, they have mentors and connections or business school classmates, whatever network you have that connects them to back to Silicon Valley, to other parts of China, especially as well. That's where we kind of see the knowledge sharing. Uh, happening and, and that that actually makes everyone even more connected in terms of just us having more data points and and, and references and, and getting to know the founder and you know the founders are very accessible whether you know they're physically located in Singapore or pre-COVID they're you know quick one hour flight away so so I think that's us getting more information on, on the team itself. Um, and for us, we, it's quite early on as you, and now, you know, we do it in a zoom setting, <laughs> but before, you know, it, it's very telling when you physically go visit them, you, you, you kind of see how the founders think about corporate culture and, and how they work together, whether there's a very clear, whether the founders can, can, understand because we're again we're at growth stage so i think when we come in i would say maybe half the bench is filled 
you know, th th there are some roles where you can see some shortcomings still, just given kind of the fight for talent in this part of the world. Um, but, you know, as a leader, not, not kind of always dominating the, the conversation. And I think that that's, that's what we like to see in terms of the, the, the founder knowing how to bring the best out of the, the, the immediate team he's around. So yeah, I, yeah I, I would just emphasize that right? I think at our stage, there's more of an operating history. And so we can see how the, the founders have developed and built their teams. I think at also our stage, there's also thoughts around upgrading parts of talent, something that we spend a lot of time doing right and helping them there. But as Anna said, at least in the US, you know, I would say not all of my founders that I've invested in are, are you know, second time founders, some of them are, are first time founders. And what you look for is just a lot of energy and belief, right? There are a lot of ups and downs, what people started off in the beginning changes over time. And then, you know, where they kind of end up uh, when they end up meeting us is, you know, a testament to what they built. And so I, every time I meet any founder, whether we invest in them or not, I'm always awestruck by how difficult it is for them to even get to that point. And so there's just a, a lot of respect. And then look, it's honestly, it's a two-way street in my mind, right? That, you know, it's often described as a marriage. Sometimes people say it's longer than a marriage because <laughs> it's very hard to divorce your shareholders. And so from that perspective, there has to just be a good natural rapport, right? And we even see that within teams that we back, right? And who they interface with at the Vision Fund, obviously. We have multiple investors and we have multiple teams and, and areas that touch each other. And some of them just naturally get along better with, with different parts of us. And, and that's totally natural, right? And, and I think that's the benefit of our platform that there are multiple people that you can interact with if needed. So, and we all have sort of different judgments within that. Yeah. Uh, on the topic of marriage, I remember Three years ago, so I had um, I had on the podcast Chan Wen, who's uh, I know maybe you know him, who's the CEO of Ninja Van, and and I asked him, so what's one piece of advice that you you would give for somebody wanting to set up their own company? And his first his first advice was, don't get married. <laughs> so no time for that. So I said, okay, I, that, that's fairly extreme, but um, uh, but it is it is it is the hardest. The hardest possible thing that that one can do I mean, um i think it's uh it's maybe in this world where we've seen a couple of amazing success stories people tend to underestimate the amount of work that goes into setting up a successful company and and scaling it i mean setting it up um, arguably is not <laughs> not the most difficult part the, you know the actual sustaining it over time in a profitable and and in good way is is, is the difficult piece so um so yeah that's that's the marriage the marriage analogy final question from from my side and i wanted to ask both of you it's a, it's a topic we've seen you might have seen there's a report that came up on the you know what we need to do on the sustainability front on on lowering emissions transportation logistics uh, accounts for a huge chunk of that right and and you guys have a lot of power to influence through the 
investments that you make and there's a there's a big leverage that you can have also across your portfolio companies so maybe talk to us a little bit on on that front of of course if you if you manage through we manage as a as a, you know human race through ai to properly do effective last mile effective deliveries that will lower tremendously the footprint the carbon footprint so yeah. tell us your thoughts on that no, I'm actually glad you brought that up, Roger, because when we talked about trends earlier, I think sustainability is one of those things that we, beyond just transportation and logistics, and something that I think is important at the corporate level and a personal level for me, and I, I think will become more and more important over time. And I think, like you said, AI and data applications actually have a great ability to help solve this. It won't be the only thing that, that will deal with it. But even one of our investments that so we invested in a company called Flock Freight, which is a, a digital freight broker fo focused on the less than truckload market. And part of what they do is they actually help pool uh, shipments. So in a less than truckload, right, you don't fill up the truck. A big issue within trucking is actually there are a lot of empty miles, right? You drive out with the truck. It may not be full itself. You deliver it and then you just drive home empty, right? And the ability to pool that, you can actually therefore move, create a win-win-win-win that I like to say, one, the shipper ends up paying less, the carrier makes more money because it can skip the hub and spoke, the consumer gets a, a better experience, generally get there quicker, less damage, and then you reduce the, the carbon emissions. And so Flock Freight actually is a B Corp, which in America means obviously it's environmentally friendly. They allow people to have carbon neutral shipping, which is great, right, where they can offset it also through pooling, look, it's a, it's a great margin product too, right? Because you are adding value and this is a direct relationship to having data and the application of AI and just the digitization of, as Anna talked about earlier, a very old school system that involved, has historically involved a lot of paper, pencil and, and the phone. And so I think, you know, other things that we look at within mobility, obviously within the ACES framework of wanting it to be autonomous, connected, you know, electric and shared, all those things, right? I, I'm also involved with a company called Get Around, which involves car sharing, right? Like you don't need to produce a number of cars. A lot of cars end up just sitting in parking lots. Can you better monetize it? You can share these vehicles and therefore hopefully reduce just the amount of vehicles that we have to produce over time. And so yeah, I, I hope that what we do is having a positive impact. Masa often talks about that, right? That happiness and is actually a key component of what we do. So. Okay, on, on my end, I get to do some uh, plugs for SBG as a group, and I think as um, you know, given our investments in the mobility space and as a mature and and you know. A few of them are already public companies. They they do have very clear ESG targets. But just to address the environment front, I think, and this was you know fresh off the press from our earnings uh, announcement two days ago. You know, on our major subsidiaries, think about Arm, which is still a, a key subsidiary. Um, they completed the conversion of 70% of electricity to renewable energy. On the SoftBank KK front, for example, by the end of this fiscal year, we 50% of our base stations will be using renewable energy. And I think on our internet side in Japan, we will 
target to get to 100% of renewable energy for electricity uses in two years' time. So those are just examples, I think, for, for all of our list codes, they're very clear targets. An example on the mobility side in Southeast Asia, you know, as Grab prepares to go public, they've also set up very clear uh, targets on, on the ESG front. Like John said, they're using AI and technology to ensure that, you know, you know, you take the most optimal traffic route. Our key shareholders in Grab, one of them is Toyota, and we have many strategic partners with OEMs such as Hyundai and Honda. So all these car manufacturers are very aligned to ensure that, you know, the vehicles that Grab uses, you know, you're moving either towards hybrid or electric on the food delivery front. Packaging for sure needs to be compliant with uh, food safety standards in each of the countries it operates in and the reduction of packaging, right? Like, like what we talked about at the beginning is like, do you want 10 Amazon boxes outside of your house uh, every day or just, you know, have them do it in one go. And, and I think one of this also reminds me of, I think one of the um, videos, which, uh, our portfolio company coupon showed during their IPO roadshow is really about they were the first player in Korea in e-commerce to really introduce, you know, boxless deliveries, right? Because just the density of Seoul allows the delivery man to to just drop off the actual goods without without the box in front of their doorstep. So so there there are tons of things that 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 we're doing that we can I wouldn't say we're influencing. <laughs> I think everyone, all stakeholders, are very conscious of um, of this change. Uh, there's no denial to that fact, um, and they're all taking their own initiatives. Yeah, and I would add, Radu, that we actually, as part of all our diligence of all the vision fund companies, actually go through an ESG due diligence to see what the potential impact is, and that you know SBI itself is part of one planet, which uh, seeks to accelerate the integration of climate action to the management of, of assets. And so, you know, this continues to be a, a key thing that we do think about, whether we invest directly in companies that obviously are having a direct impact, but we also want to make sure that there are, you know, we're minimizing the impact from them. Yeah. No, glad to hear. Uh, one of my friends is uh, very much. I mean, I think we we all we all should be actually. But anyways, he's very vocal about it. He posted actually on LinkedIn that he's been you know trying to reduce. He's actually a vegan. He's is very much in terms of reducing his own carbon footprint. What can he do? And he also posted yesterday that he invested in a fund specifically geared towards green and and all of that because ultimately that's how you make the most impact. And, and I think there's a huge, well, there's a reality check. If we don't do it by 2040, we will be significantly in trouble by 2050, even more so. And secondly, pragmatically, it makes business sense, actually, uh, right? I mean, most of this, you save cost as well with this. I mean, talk about packaging. It's pet peeve of mine. And I pissed with the amount of carton and all that kind of, you know, plastic. And I mean, I got, I'm not going to name the... <laughs> where I bought it from, right? But I got, I bought, I bought a tennis racket or something, right? And you get this humongous box. And you're like, what? Who did this? Like, you know, <laughs> you didn't need to pack it as if I had ordered a fridge. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big problem that needs to be fixed. So glad to hear that you guys are doing something about it. 
And yeah, on that note, I want to thank both of you for your insights, for the time and for coming here and, and sharing with, uh, with with our audience. And yeah, wishing you to keep up the great work, keep investing in, in logistics, in transportation, in, in mobility related scale ups. They are incredibly important. And yeah, we thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you for having us, Rade. We really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank Mike. you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcodglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five Star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.